everyone. Welcome to episode 58 of the MTG Grindcast, the spookiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina, with a special focus on the SCG Tour. We are your hosts. I'm Chris Gaster-Rappel, and with me, as always, is Collins Mullen. Hey, Collins. What's up, Chris? How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? Um, also pretty good. I just uh, got back from Baltimore, which was pretty nice. It had been a minute since I had traveled to an open, so uh, it was kind of cool to get back in the thick of things and see everybody, and shout-outs to everybody that came up to me and, and told me that they liked the podcast. That's always awesome. Appreciate you guys. Yeah, that sounds dope. It, it looks like you... I, I saw you brought a pretty spicy deck to the <laughs> open itself. <laughs> yeah, I did. For, so for most of the week, I was kind of planning on playing humans, but then I kind of started playing a little bit of Burn, and just kind of like under maybe the assumption that Burn might be good this weekend. But what really threw it over the edge for me was that I started like tinkering with the Burn list. I've always kind of liked the idea of putting Mistress Bobble and Street Wraith in Burn, and Bomat Courier, of course, is is like an excellent card. So I uh, I put all I kind of like threw together a list that had you know just kind of like the the fundamental like good cards of Burn, like the one mana three damage spells, and then like the good creatures. Um, and then, you know, I kind of f- filled it out with Street Wraiths and, and Mistress Bobbles, just <laughs> under the concept that you could use those to, like, help filter your draws to try to draw a, a more appropriate distribution of lands and spells. I think that, you know, it worked out. I liked it a lot. The The first opening hand that I had, I had uh, one land, a Mistress Bobble, a Goblin Guide, and a Bomat Courier. So I was able to look at the top of my library first with Bo- with the Mistress Bobble, see that it wasn't a land, and then I led with Bomat Courier to get rid of that card, and then I drew into a land because of that. Gotcha. Uh, for, and then next turn I could, like, Goblin Guide and spike him or something. So, you know, it felt really good. So um, so between the, the Couriers and the Street Race, yeah, you, you kind of get to use your Mistress Bobbles as, like, cheating. Right, exactly. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you know, if you ever have a fetch land, you should be able to finagle your Mistress Bobble into an opt, essentially, mm-hmm. um, for for zero mana. And I'd kind of always thinking about how like Serum Visions would be busted in Burn if you didn't have such an extreme mana requirement to use all of your mana every turn to you know be proactive in your game plan of casting burn spells. Um, sure. But you know, with the with the Mistress Bobble and the Street Wraith. That's all kind of like free, right? So you you can still use your mana to cast all cast your spells on time, um, and you have like a little bit of, of card selection. I you know it's very possible that I went too deep with the addition of Street Wraith. Maybe you just want the Mistress Bobbles, and the Street Wraith was kind of like a little too deep. Street Wraith was kind of more in there to like complement the the Mistress Bobbles when you have like a one land fetch land opener with Mistress Bobble and Street Wraith. You can like check the top. If it's a if it's a land that you want, you can draw it right away with Street Wraith and then fetch. Um, so that's like pretty good. But yeah, I mean, I had a blast playing it, and uh, definitely got a lot of strange reactions from my opponents when I, <laughs> you know, played a Swift Spear and then triggered its prowess with a Mistress Bobble, and then you know they were like, "What is going on?" So that was all fun. Yeah, that's sweet. Are you going to keep working on this deck in the future, or you know, what do we think about it going forward? I, I do want to keep on working it for sure, um, but it's just so hard to, I feel like this is kind of like one of the fundamental problems that I run into a lot where, you know, I get really excited about something and then I, you know, tune it a little bit and then I take it to the tournament and then 
from that tournament, I have a lot of things to take away, and you know, I like I know how to fix it better, and you know, tune it up a little more. But I, immediately, I'm already trying to prepare for Legacy this weekend in Richmond. So yep. I feel like you know, it's it's a better use for my time to shift back to you know testing Legacy Death Shadow instead of. Uh, you know, fixing up this burn deck. So I probably should just find the time to, you know, try to continue working on this burn deck because I'm sure that I can make it even better. But, you know, my, my time feels a lot more constrained now that, you know, I'm not dedicating 100% of my time to, to brewing and stuff. Oh, definitely. So, yeah, I mean, that's yeah. a really real thing. I, I It is difficult to find the time to really do all the work yourself. I, I've definitely experienced that. I uh, played in GP Prague this weekend and had one of the rougher <laughs> weekends that I've had in quite a while. I, oh, not no. only not only did I get pretty crushed in the main event. So I, you know, and part of this, I think, was sort of as a result of, of time, time constraints and not quite putting in the work going down all avenues that I, I wish that I could have. Um, so, mm -hmm. you know, what I did going into this tournament was I was kind of concentrating on Vengevine and trying to make that work. And I tried yeah. a lot of different iterations. Uh, I, I tried a bunch of different things, and that's why we've got a whole section of this show on Vengevine and, and its place in Modern. But uh, my ultimate conclusion at the end of running a bunch of leagues with a bunch of different configurations and trying to make it work is that it's still a little bit short of where I want to be in a Modern deck right now. So I, you know, just a couple of days before the tournament, I decided I don't think I can run this in a GP. And uh -huh. that left me in kind of a weird place where I had all this practice time. Like, I was freshest. I, I was all, all of my, like, most recent knowledge of how to play Modern was how to play it with this deck that I wasn't going to play. So I just borrowed a Humans deck from a friend. And I've played Humans before, a, a pretty reasonable amount. Uh, I haven't really played it since the introduction of Militia Bugler, but I, I figured I would still be okay. And then, like, four rounds later, some, some bad variants, some not some not incredible sequencing on my part and i was dead in the tournament so it was, yeah you know pretty rough tournament i don't know that there was too much that i could have done uh even if all of my plays were correct even if all of my mulligans were correct i don't know that i would have done that much better but i know i wasn't playing perfectly or anything uh, and i know i wasn't playing at the level where i where i could and it's because i just hadn't put in a lot of work recently on humans and and that kind of it was tough i i mean i knew and and part of it one of the things that I was realizing as the day was going on is that the mechanics of playing Paper Magic were feeling a little bit weird to me because I've been playing almost exclusively Magic Online. My Magic playing is pretty much Magic Online and then go travel to a GP for a weekend. And right, yeah. <laughs> so that 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 means that I, like even just like shuffling up a deck and drawing seven and then keeping my mana organized, keeping my graveyard organized and stuff. Like, that was taking a weirdly large amount of mental energy, which is not normal for me, because, you know, usually I play a lot of Paper Magic, but I just I don't at the moment. So, you know, I think one of the things that I'm pretty excited for about coming back home is the ability to go do paper testing and, you know... <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, and, and like one of the things that has become really, really important to me is developing like sideboard plans that I'm very comfortable with. And that's so hard to do when you're just jamming leagues. And so I'm, I'm really looking forward to like having a friend sitting across from me and trying a sideboard configuration for three games and then switching it up and uh, 
you know, there's just a lot of work you can do in paper that you can't do on Magic Online. And it was kind of funny, like, I, I went online and I saw that Zv had written an article, like, a, a day or two ago just on the dangers of exclusively testing online. And that's one of the things I came out of this tournament already feeling. Like, I, mm-hmm. I'm kind of suffering for just not getting in any of that paper magic. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very lucky to, to live in an area that has a lot of opportunities for, you know, playing at local stores and everything. But I, you know... I've talked to a lot of people who are like, you know, big SCG grinders or, or uh, Grand Prix grinders or something who, you know, live in areas that have access to paper testing, but just kind of like, almost like look down their nose on like going to local stores and playing in local events and stuff like that. But I've never really understood that. And I've always kind of really valued going to local events to test a lot just because of exactly what you're talking about. Just like having the mechanics down for... Just, like, having cards in your hand and not having to worry about, like, you know, needing to think about that when it comes to Grand Prix time, it, it can make a big difference that you, you know, you might not suspect would be, like, a, a, a real factor. But uh, I've definitely seen it, and I, you know, so it's it's good that you're, you know, you're you're about to have the opportunity again to, to kind of play in these local events more often. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty excited about that. And, for sure, you know, I, <laughs> kind of the... The, the this weekend kind of broke me a little bit for paper magic though. Oh no! I, uh, like uh, went one and three in the main event, so I thought, all right, I'll go do a draft because I know that I'm pretty good at M19 draft. I've I've had a lot of success with that. I'll, I'll just it'll it'll make me feel better to go do a draft. Immediately got crushed in that. I went zero and two in a modern event on Sunday, and then I tried to do another draft, and my opponent plays a turn four vampire sovereign, which costs three and two black. And then it's a turn five Gigantosaurus, which costs green, 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 green. So <laughs> well, I was we'll like, all right, that, that was kind of just a sign. Like, all right, I know what, I understand what's going on here. We're not supposed to win any matches this weekend. We'll just, <laughs> yeah, we'll just chalk this take, one up to, um, not worry about it. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Just take a deep breath and come back stronger is, uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. It, you know, I was feeling a little bit salty at that point. Not too bad, but it was... You know, I, I just felt like I it had been so many games since I had gotten something going, and that's kind of a, a tough feeling a little bit, but I'm okay now. I'm, I'm, I'm all better. Yeah. No, I mean, I understand. You know, I've, I've definitely... I feel like it's kind of switched for us, because I have a lot of those times on Magic Online where I'm playing and I'm playing and I'm playing and I'm playing and I just can't buy a match win, you know, and all my play points start evaporating and all this stuff, and I can get frustrated... But I guess it's easier to be in that position on, you know, when you're just kind of jamming at home and you can, you know, just take a kind of take a breather whenever you want to and not like, you know, we've traveled to this tournament and this is this is the time that I want to perform and now it's happening is that definitely feels probably yeah. feels pretty worse. Yeah. Oh, and I'm definitely not saying that that doesn't happen to me on Magic Online. That's why I did not play Vengevine this this weekend yeah. is because that right. happened to me playing Vengevine and you know, I had a couple of good leagues to start with it, and then I started trying to tweak it and stuff, and then just the the wheels came off, and I got destroyed over and over and over again. So, But we will talk about that a little more into the episode. <laughs> so before we get into things, I definitely want to thank our patrons. We've got several new patrons this week, so thanks, hey. thanks so much to Thomas, Scott, William, and David. Um, you guys are awesome. Everybody who's supporting us definitely just cannot possibly thank you enough it is is super cool that you want to you know 
come be a part of this, come hang out in the Discord, and I'm definitely, now that I'm headed back to the States in just a couple of weeks, I think it will be easier to, you know, finalize some of these rewards, figure out what to do with these hats we got printed up, and that sort of thing, so we should have some exciting and interesting stuff coming up soon, so, so look forward to that. Sweet. Yeah, shout-outs to T. Lee. Uh, I see you there. <laughs> thanks, yeah, for, thanks. thanks for the support. Thank you very much. All right, so we should kick kick off our hard magic content with a Keeper Mall. This is one from my GP. So this is Game 2 versus Ironworks. If it makes any difference, uh, we are down a game. I mean, it does make a difference because we're on the play. But if it makes any difference, we are down a game in round four. And this is our, our bubble round because we are one and two at this point with two buys. So, uh, you know... We're, we're kind of we're kind of against it at this point. So on the play, we've got two caverns, a freebooter, two meddling mages, a mantis rider, and a Thalia's lieutenant. And this is game two versus Krok Clan Ironworks. So if you if you want to just give your initial impressions of this hand, and then I'll talk about what I did and 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 what I was thinking. So right, I mean, I I've been vo- pretty vocal in general about. Uh, mulliganing sevens that don't have a one drop out of humans Mm -hmm. and this is a seven that doesn't have a one drop but um, I think that in this scenario in particular uh, we have a lot of other information that can you know allow us to like break free from that like default we know that we're playing against ironworks and against ironworks we really are leaning heavily on our disruptive elements and we've got three of those in our opening hand we've got we've got two lands we've got one freebooter and two meddling mages and freebooter into meddling mage is kind of like exactly what you're looking for. It's in this in this particular matchup because mm-hmm. um, a lot of the time you can like be you know playing guesswork on what to name with the meddling mages. But if you can just see your hand your opponent's hand early on, then um, you should be able to uh, you know name the appropriate things with your meddling mages. Yep. Um, uh, and and we are on the play, so you know we get to cast our freebooter as early as turn two, um, and then hopefully play some meddling mages from there. Uh, if we you know if we want to be safe, um, our clock's kind of slow, but we do have the mana Rider and the Thali's lieutenant, and those cards uh, can be pretty exp- like can can turn your hand into an explosive hand um, to put on like a, a like a two or a three turn clock starting on turn like you know three or four, or probably four or five with this hand since it's a little slower. Yeah. Um, so because I know that we're, what we're up against and our hand is pretty solid against that, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean towards keeping this hand. Yeah, and that's, that's what I did. Uh, and I was just wondering if maybe that was a mistake because the things kind of went wrong the way you can see them going wrong with this hand, which is basically that I, I never drew another land at, at, after, the, you know, after these initial two. Um, yeah. I, I did drop plenty of ether vials starting on turn three or so. Um, <laughs> sure. Um, and and I I don't mean to just like give this out as a bad beat story, but like this is this is the reason why in the dark you always mulligan the hand without the one drop, because what this game ended up being was uh, I just played one human per turn for for the entire game, right. and even though the humans I was playing were pretty good in this matchup, and that's why I kept the hand my opponent just had the tools to to beat one human per turn like that's something that is very overcomeable for 
the the ironworks deck and you know we started out pretty well like he had mold to six with uh no colored lands in hand so my freebooter i took his uh icker wellspring but then he sort of drew out of that drew multiple different named removal spells and i never really got a chance to like keep threats on the board at some point i had to just hope at one point i had a choice between playing a meddling mage or playing a mantis rider meddling mantis rider would have put him on a two-turn clock meddling mage would have made it unlikely that he could kill me next turn because i would name ironworks and even if he had a removal spell for my other meddling mage that was already on ironworks then that then he wouldn't be able to kill me but then my clock would be extraordinarily slow and i i went with the mantis rider play but since i had only been playing the one human per turn it just he was able to get out from under that he had the the other removal spell and just killed me because I had to tap out for the Mantis Rider when I finally drew that third land. So, you know, I, I think that's just a good example of why in the dark it's just always right to mulligan to having a one-drop. And that's why I, I went with the Avacyn's Pilgrim this weekend, is because I I just hate keeping these hands that are just like, I, I hope playing one human each turn for the entire game is going to be good enough. It, it just, yeah. even with good humans, it, it often isn't, so... Yeah, for sure. I've, I've always been a huge proponent of Absence Pilgrim, and I probably will never play a list of humans without that one of. And it's been, like, dropping in popularity um, for some reason, but I just, I just it feels so correct to me, so I don't know. I can definitely see how, you know, with this hand you might... Especially if, if the draws line up in such a way where you freebooter them and they don't have any of their, like, key pieces yet, and then they draw into it later, that... That might be a, a way for you to lose um, in this particular matchup uh, with this particular hand. Yeah. But I, I, you know, still looking at it, I still think it's a keep. I still think that your your win percentage with this hand is, is going to be pretty high in general against um, in Crackline Ironworks. But nothing's 100%. You're still going to lose some of those games. So. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But I just thought this was an interesting one uh, and, and a good example of, you know, why mulling getting aggressively is really important and and why even though like this one does look like totally solid hand and a good hand against ironworks and even though maybe we are falling on the side of keep it's closer than you might think for a hand that's like two good lands and a bunch of good spells in the matchup sure yeah so i think today we're gonna mostly focus on modern because we it's been a little bit since we've had a good solid modern episode and we've got a couple of tournaments to look at some very recent representative modern results we've got gp Prague, which is a, a 2000 player gp for us to look at and we've also got scg baltimore which and you know we each played in one so we can sort of give our impressions of what was going on and we've grabbed a bunch of stats uh from the represented decks and how each one did and yeah i think we should just kind of kind of go nuts with with trying to figure out where this format is at right now modern yeah so there was a crowdsourced like Google document that went up on Twitter where people could input their uh, their results and their or not their results as much as their uh, what decks they played against over the course of the tournament and what their name was and uh, somebody was able to cross reference that with the results posted through the the Grand Prix to kind of get a like a, a matchup breakdown mm-hmm. and a like overall win percentage for each archetype which yeah. is pretty cool. And just kind of looking over the, you know, the archetypes sorted by their overall win percentage, 
At the top, we have some kind of unexpected decks that I think tell a really big story for tournament. Uh, at the very top is Blue White Spirits with a 61.86 uh, overall win percentage, which is uh, you know pretty high for Modern. And you know this tournament also won, or this deck, I'm sorry, this deck also won SCG Baltimore. Yeah, yeah. Looking at the numbers, it looks like that wasn't just a fluke. It looks like the Blue White Spirits deck is is really powerful. Um, and Bant Spirits is just a couple slots down at also 60% of uh, 60% win, win percentage. So, you know, these Spirits decks are, are really kind of showing their, their, their power here. Yeah, and I definitely wanted to talk about those today. Yeah, Andrei Stavsky played a list that was kind of like a mix between the Bant and the Blue-White versions. Yeah, he had he had both Vials and Company in his list, which is uh, not not a super common choice. Right, right, and that that's why it kind of feels like a mix for me because like you know the blue white version is only on Vials and the Company version is typically only on Collecting Companies. But I really like in theory the idea of just playing both. It gives you you know a lot of really powerful turn one options in both like a mana creature and the vial and you still have the resiliency of just like having the collected companies in your deck just as really powerful draws to kind of like regas or whatever so that uh you know it seems like if there's something to take away from this tournament it's that you know blue white spirits was really uh you know one of the one of the dominant performers kind of you know for the first time this weekend yeah yeah i mean it definitely seems like a very real deck it's doing you know powerful sort of modern oriented things which is like playing on your opponent's end step like waiting for them to fi- like waiting to find out what your opponent is doing before committing to the board or, or you know committing another spell like i've definitely like in getting used to playing this deck i have definitely walked into rattle chains and stuff and maybe the win percentage goes down a little bit as people sort of relearn how to play against rattle chains and and spell queller a little bit because i'm sure mm-hmm that that's part of the percentage of the deck is it is difficult to play against but but not all of it like the deck is good i'm not, I'm not saying the deck isn't good or anything like that so yeah i was watching some of the like, like the semifinals and the finals and you know even the players who had made it to the semifinals and the finals were still kind of like punting into the blue white spirits player and just like you know letting them use their utilize their rattle chains really well you know all sorts of stuff that uh you typically want to avoid doing in that matchup yeah, it's so, a it's a tough deck to play against for sure. Uh, if you yeah, oh yeah. haven't played the matchup, which I think most people haven't at this point. Like I, I have thrown away a lightning axe into a, a rattle chains, and it felt real, mm. real bad. So. Yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> for sure. But it, you know, it's hard to play around. Even you know, you're, if your opponent has a vial going, they they're just yeah. always going to have that available to them. And if if your opponent leaves it on two at some point, then you really got to be wary of what's going on. If, if they could have chosen to take it up to three, then then you know, be suspicious. Yeah, in so I've, I've been playing a lot of burn uh, to test for this weekend, and in that matchup, I almost just gave up trying to kill their creatures a lot of the time, unless they like gave me a really good opportunity to kill mm-hmm. one of their guys. I just, you know, I, I figured it was safer to just try to race, you know, because if I get caught up trying to play this control game with burn, and they just like get me with rattle chains, like even just once, that could be the difference between being able to being able to close it out and and not. So it's, right. you know, it's it's definitely uh, pretty tough there. 
And they can also flash in Selfless Spirit to get you sometimes, too. Like, it's very good at protecting its... Uh, selfless Spirit, Spell Queller. Um, right, and, and it's so good at protecting that Spell Queller once it's got an important spell under it that... Oh, yeah. yeah it's a really good Spell Queller deck. Probably the best Spell Queller deck I've seen. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think I've ever seen a better one. This It definitely yeah. just does a great job of turning it into three-mana flash, counter a spell, and then you die to it. And then kind of like the other big story of the weekend, and this is the deck that I I think won Grand Prix Prague, was Hardened Scales. Mm-hmm. So the on number two of our highest win percentage decks, we've got Hardened Scales at 61.64% win percentage. Peter Tobergen played that deck in in Baltimore, and I, I think he had a deck tech, and but just kind of like all weekend he was preaching about how the deck was just way better than he was, and he was just getting all these insane wins just because of what the deck was doing felt way more busted than than what he's normally used to. And he's normally used to playing just, like, Affinity, which we know is, you know, capable of doing some really busted things. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, this, this Hardened Scales deck, now that people are starting to figure out how to play it and how to build it right, and I feel like we've talked about this before on the podcast, but it's it's starting to become clear that this Hardened Scales deck is the real deal. And it might just be, you know, a replacement for Affinity. Which is kind of like another interesting story. Affinity has like the the lowest win percentage <laughs> yeah. um, of all of these decks <laughs> that we see here. Yeah, and on this chart of, um, of matchup percentages, Affinity seems to be losing to almost everything right now. So yeah, right. That's, that's definitely a tough one to recommend. <laughs> that's pretty interesting. You know, it beats up on humans, it feels like, but, you know, everything else seems to be a pretty, pretty tough, tough matchup for it. Right, and I mean, like, Hardened Scales is just fine against humans, so if you want to be doing that sort of thing, then you can you can still be doing that sort of thing, and you're not losing too many percentage points against just humans. What's, what's interesting to me here on this matchup list, and this was a little bit unexpected until I think you think about it a little bit, Hardened Scales' worst matchups looks like it's the Spirits decks and Blue-White Control, mm-hmm. and I think... That that's almost entirely just because those are the decks that have rest in peace and stony silence in the sideboard. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Because I think hardened scales in general probably is fine against like like game ones against spirits. Like if you make a a big walking blister or a big hanger back walker at any point, um, although there's, there's not much know, they can do about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know the creature decks tend to uh, have bad matchups against hardened scales because those giant guys just just take over the game. But yeah, that that combo of like rest in peace and stony silence to just shut down all of the powerful stuff you're doing, uh, I think, you know, that's that's a good way to take advantage of this deck being around is if you can have those cards in your sideboard. Yeah, definitely a lot of interesting data here, um, and uh, I'll probably end up posting this the link to this spreadsheet in the in our Discord just so that more people can have access to it. Might yeah. do that right now because uh, there's definitely a lot of really useful information here. For sure. And then one thing that we were also looking at is just sort of like top 32 slots and, and conversion rates from day two. Um, you know, we have sort of a metagame breakdown of day two of the GP. And what's kind of surprising here is that blue-white control is the most played deck by a, a wide margin. It's There's 380 decks in day two and blue-white control is 44 of them. Second place is humans at 30. So so blue eye control is definitely 
had a lot of success over the weekend, uh, at least getting to day two. And then in converting to like top 32 slots, GP Prague, we saw a full quarter of the top 32 was blue-white control. And then in the open, you know, three of the top 32 decks were, were blue-white. And so it actually was, you know, one of the most successful decks this weekend. And, you know, a little bit surprising to see a, a reactive deck doing that, but I guess it's just got enough good matchups now that it's it's really coming into its own. Yeah, a blue control is you know I think that the players who were playing Jeskai have kind of like had their come to Jesus moment I guess, <laughs> and and have probably shifted over towards this this blue white control build. You know at at the at the open I I you know talked to a lot of players who had did make that switch from Jeskai to blue white. So I think that's just kind of like the the next evolution of of what control looks like in in modern, and people are finally finally kind of coming to that realization of you know blue white control being the, the better option there yeah and especially if affinity gets replaced by hardened scales then that takes away a lot of the reason to be on jeskai because I, yeah. I think blue white probably is stronger against hardened scales than than jeskai is and not having targets for not having real targets for electrolyze is a, a pretty big problem there right yeah y- yeah against the hardened scales deck you're not going to be able to you know, utilize all of your bolts and your electrolyzes as easily as you used to. The the creatures in hardened scales get you know really big really quickly, so you kind of got to look out for that. Yeah, but terminus is pretty gross against that deck. Yeah, terminus kind of you know unless you have a sack outlet, then terminus is going to be really tough. And even then, like what what are you when you sacrifice your stuff? Like oh yeah, I guess is... you just like don't even have any outs to that. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's pretty pretty bad for you just all right. the time yeah for sure but yeah so you know sweepers in general i guess are, are going to be stronger against that deck so and blue white is definitely considered to be you know the best it's it's more oriented towards like you know catching up than it is to like keeping parity the whole time like Jessica is right. really good at keeping parity the whole time but blue white control is you know trying to get down some sort of like advantage engine and then sweep up and then take over the game that way so you know that seems like it's going to fit you know pretty well with that plan yeah yeah i mean blue white really is a terminus deck in the creature matchups like that the entire game rotates around getting that terminus to happen and you know so we see something like uh ted felicetti's deck list that just has you know they're, they're playing ops over serum visions because that gives you just a slightly higher chance of getting a terminus because you've got one more first card drawn per turn one more chance to miracle and uh, Ted Felicetti's even running Telling Time, which has a great chance of putting a, a, a Terminus right where you want it. So just maximizing those Terminuses in the creature matchups, everybody's still pretty vulnerable to them. And definitely you are worse against humans than Jeskai is, and I, I assume you're worse against spirits than Jeskai is. But in a lot of the other creature matchups, you're, you, you gain a lot of ground. You know, stuff like, like Hollow One... Like, they don't really care about lightning bolts, but man, do they care about Terminus. And and blue Eye Control is is just prepared to take advantage of that part of the metagame in a pretty dominating way, I think. Yeah, definitely agree with you there. And, and just has the stronger sideboard cards, because Jeskai tends not to be able to have rest in peace in the board. I guess sometimes they do, but blue White is less dependent on Snapcaster, so they can even board them out in the matchups where they want rest in peace and so that's a pretty nice bonus for making that switch 
Yeah. Of course, at least one person on on your team did not make that switch. Uh, ben Nicklich. <laughs> top oh, eight in man. the open. Nicklich's deck list. We were laughing at him the whole weekend. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> As he crushed people. Well, yeah. I mean, it's Nicklich, right? He's, he's yeah. playing Jeskai cards. He's going to do well. See, and, and that's the thing is... Like, it's kind of hard to take these results too seriously because Ben was piloting this deck at a very, very high percentage of, of what it's capable of. And I'm sure the card choices of, you know, three Settle the Wreckage are, are right for Jeskai for that tournament, but it's hard to say play this deck when it's one of the best players in the tournament did well with it. You know, mm-hmm. what do we attribute that to? Right, yeah. And we were kind of laughing because his his quarterfinals matchup was against Dredge, mm-hmm. and Dredge traditionally against Jeskai is a really, really bad matchup. But Ben just had kind of stumbled into having three set of the wreckage in his main deck for this tournament, <laughs> which is really, really good against Dredge. So he was able to kind of pull it out because of that. And we, so that was, we were all kind of like laughing in our in our group chat of like, you know, when we found out what we, he was paired against in top eight, we were like, oh, well, okay, thank God that he's, he's pulled the trigger on all these set of the wreckages. <laughs> right, or else it's just, a, um, you know, like a 10% game one basically like yeah the settles solve that what was his original logic behind the settle the wreckage it the you know three settles in the main deck i obviously it is not to beat dredge so, so no what's the, yeah what's I, the motivation I can't remember there? exactly i think that he just kind of wanted to play he, he wanted to get percentage points but from people kind of like not playing around it and not naming mm-hmm. it with meddling mage he just kind of wanted to do something a little more unexpected just because anything that you can do to make things a little less expected is to, you know, is, is going to benefit you as long as it's not costing you too many, like, general percentage points. And Settle's still fine, you know? Right, so, totally. Yeah, um, and it, it definitely, it's less powerful than something like Terminus against, like, Hardened Scales because they have, you know, they have the ability to play around it. They can, you know, not attack with a man land so they can toss the counters onto it or whatever, but it's still... Right. Yeah. Still fine in that matchup and very good against graveyard decks like Hollow One and Vengevine. So it's it's kind of like a, you know, a, a a budget terminus effect sort of like budget <laughs> yeah. as in like like the amount of deck space that has to be dedicated towards making the card work. I guess. But the reason for the peaks was hilarious. Yeah. I, <laughs> okay. Yeah. He told me that the peaks were in there just so that he could look at his opponent's hand, see that it was bad, and slam Jace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that makes sense. That's sort of I was I was thinking like like that that can be the only reason for the peak, right? Is to allow because yeah. the rest of the deck is instants, but the peak right. lets you play your four mana sorcery, right? So yeah, so he just you know uh, he just wanted to be able to look at his opponent's hand, see that it was bad, and you not not have to worry about it. <laughs> and just, I think that's more of like a mental thing than anything else. But uh, uh, I just thought that was funny. Yeah, I mean that is the tough part, like playing, you know. Four mana planeswalkers in modern. That has been one of the reasons that I don't do it because it's so hard to pick your spot there. Sometimes you cast it and it's the perfect thing to do, and your opponent just slumps down in their chair and they're like, "All right, you, you called me and you got it." But sometimes they just untap and kill you. So uh, yeah. I, I totally understand where he's coming from with that peak. I don't know that you know I can just get behind this as the correct way to play Jaces forever, though. Right. Right. Yeah, who knows? But, you know, he he did definitely enjoyed memeing on people this weekend, and it, it worked out for him, so you gotta give him props yeah. for that. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, the my main concern with Peak, I think Peak is a fine card. Uh, my main concern with it is mostly just that, like, the more, like, weird cantrip things you put in your deck, the worse you are if there's a Thalia in play. But he's cut out all of the cantrips from the deck. And obviously, like, he's strongly favored against humans, so that, that little bit of a Thalia concern isn't that big of a deal. You know, kind of interesting that, that he felt that... I, I mean, I guess, like... Like, cantrips in Jeskai are not at their best, because the deck is just all removal spells and a couple of Planeswalkers, so you don't need to fix... Like, the need to fix your draws isn't as huge as it is with something like, you know, Legacy decks with Brainstorm. Most of your cards do really similar stuff, even though this is a control deck. And yeah, like, sometimes you might want to dig for a Planeswalker or a Search for counter or something like that, but I think that cutting them makes sense, and... I, probably the like the reason to play Jeskai is to maximize your matchup against humans and and cutting cantrips I think probably just you know add several percentage points there yeah humans still good still a big portion of the meta game like this is the the deck with the second highest total in the top 32s over the weekend three in the top 32 at GP Prague four in in baltimore you know still heavily played still everywhere the mirror was my one match win on the weekend um <laughs> nice but uh yeah i mean humans i think that honestly though the success from humans is mostly due to the fact that it's just so popular that mm-hmm. somebody playing humans is gonna find their way into top eight of these events I personally, I actually don't really know if humans is that great of a choice right now. It's just really geared towards, and it's it's also really hard to outmaneuver your opponents with humans. I was kind of talking about this theory uh, with Dylan on the car ride back, where we really want to play decks where that give us the opportunity to like outplay our opponents, and decks like humans and burn and you know a lot of the decks on here kind of like don't give you that opportunity to to leverage any like play skill advantage that you might have so you know and this might be you know part of why you had the weekend that you did was because you know a lot of the times humans just kind of like you know you you can do a lot to to mulligan better and all this other stuff but it when it comes to you know like the nitty-gritty of like outplaying your opponent it feels like that part of the game is kind of done for you a lot of the time with just like whatever draw that you have so i've been you know that's part of why i've been shying away from humans mostly uh is because i wanted to give myself more of an opportunity to play like outplay my opponents and then i played burn of course so you know (laughs) do as i say not as i do but yeah that was definitely like a concept that has been on my mind lately of you know finding decks that give you an opportunity to really have a lot of play to them uh it's something that i've been i've been thinking about more and more lately yeah I, I get that. I mean, when you don't have a violin play, humans is just kind of a clumsy deck. You know, you yeah, yeah. You just play your cards in order, and you you make your choices with kite self rebooters and meddling mages. But there's like a ceiling for how good those choices can be. There's no sandbagging, you know, a removal spell, or, you know, for a, a particularly opportune moment or anything like that. There's just play your play your guys in the correct order make good attacks and blocks and certainly better players are going to do better worse players are going to do worse i don't know what what phrasing is is best for that more experienced players are going to do better players who who are making worse choices are going to do worse but yeah like 
you know, something like Spirits, you just have so much more play to the cards. And I, I really do think that that's a big reason why it's doing well. Uh, you know, it's got some good tools, it's got some really powerful cards, but it's also got people casting Lightning Axes and getting them countered by Rattle Chains. And... Um, I guess I don't know how much of that is leveraging play skill as much as leveraging, you know, inexperience on an opponent's part. But with cards that are more flexible, that are not clumsy, like Spell Queller, like Rattle Chains, like all of your spirits once you have Rattle Chains in play, that can certainly be an asset to a deck. Yeah, for sure. And and that's part of why I've been considering spirits more as well, is because spirits does seem like similar to humans in the fact that it's like a bunch of creatures and, you know... Uh, you can have proactive plans that way, but also, you know, you just have a lot more play. You know, you have the flash elements, you have, you just, you just have more options, it feels like, for, you know, for getting your opponent. So few people are going to be able to get got by, like, oh no, they had a reflector mage out of humans, I wasn't prepared for this. Like, the, I think that that time, like, has, has, right. has, has passed <laughs> You are humans. never Everybody beating anyone right. because they, they tapped out for a big creature and hoped it was good enough like that's it's just not happening anymore so yeah i mean that's kind of like some of my thoughts in general on like overall deck selection philosophy is that if you feel like you have a play advantage against the room then you should be doing more to leverage that right and i think that the equity that you get out of being able to leverage that is going to be more than playing quote-unquote the best deck uh in certain in certain atmospheres Sure. Um, which is why I think that, you know, Benjamin Nikolic has so much success with Jeskai's, because Jeskai's just one of those decks that really, you know, leverages play skill, and, you know, he can utilize that advantage a lot, and his opponents are going to make mistakes, and the games are going to go longer, so he has more time to kind of capitalize on those mistakes. You know, I don't think that Jeskai's the best deck, but Benjamin Nikolic is clearly an excellent player, just kind of, on average, going to be better than all of his opponents at a Star City event, and so he wants to play a deck that... that allows them to utilize that you know this this philosophy definitely changes you know more when you're like okay we're not playing in an open anymore we're playing in a grand prix you know maybe i want to lean more towards something that's generally powerful on its own or like particularly like okay now i'm playing a pro tour i should probably mm -hmm. just play the generic powerful deck right and you know hope to get there or whatever because i'm not gonna be able to play i'll play all my opponents but you know i think that if you have the opportunity to utilize some sort of skill advantage you should you should definitely go out of your way to do something like that yeah that makes a lot of sense and it, it does need to be you know I, i'm not sure how many people are just generically good enough at magic that they should say all right i need to pick up this deck because it gives me so many options and i am better than my average opponent benjamin has been playing jess guy forever now and that's the deck that he has extraordinary skill with and i'm sure you know he can certainly play other decks and play them very well but he's going to be playing Jeskai better than anyone in the room could play it, except for maybe John Rossum. So, like, <laughs> that's that yeah. that practice with that specific deck, and that you know, you know, he's played it enough that he knows like I can win these matches with Settle the Wreckage in my deck, and that's what I'm going to do in order to you know get an advantage. Is people are going to walk into this, and I know that it's going to work in this deck because he has so many reps with it that he can make that choice. Um, so that like deck familiarity is a, a pretty powerful weapon to have. One other thing that I, I think is is pretty interesting to think about is that you know when you're talking about flexible 
decks like Jeskai that just has so many instants that do like kind of different stuff, not only are you giving yourself lots of options, but you are making it difficult for your opponents to understand what you could have at any given moment. Like this is the classic mistbind click slash cryptic command on turn four where your opponent doesn't really know which one you have and has to sort of commit to playing around one of them. And if you just have both, it doesn't really matter what they decide to do because they punish opposite plays. And giving yourself options also just limits your opponent's decision-making and, and can be really punishing to them. So, yeah, I, I think that it's it's really good. If you have the play skill to take advantage of a deck like that, then absolutely go for it. But I guess you can just get benefits other ways because, like, when my opponent is tapped out after playing a human, I know I can do whatever I want on my turn. When my opponent has a vial up, that becomes less true. My, when my opponent has a vial up and I know they're also playing flash creatures or I know they're also playing instant speed removal or counter spells or something, then that becomes even less true. So just another tool to leverage, I guess. Yeah, definitely. So I wanted to talk about some kind of specific choices that I've been really impressed with and... Um, I don't think that any of these are like particularly crazy things, but they're definitely things that if you're not aware of them, they will get you. And uh, I, I think that they're they're really powerful. Uh, so like one of the big things is these Baneslayer Angels and Lyra Dawnbringers out of the sideboard of Blue White and Jeskai Control. They are good in like almost every matchup. Like I've been so <laughs> impressed. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I saw I saw Ben, you know, kind of like land a. A Lyra or a Baneslayer against uh, his dredge opponent, and it was just mm-hmm. you know his his dredge opponent didn't have a conflagrate, and the game just kind of like ended on the spot. Uh, it yep. was pretty crazy how that one card could just like you know delegitimize that strategy so so effectively. Yeah, his opponent just had to skip like three combat steps, and then the game was over. Like right, it was yeah. just unwinnable. And I think that Ben also could have even just like you know landed the the Baneslayer and just attacked and. He, he decided to play Baneslayer and then the next turn play Teferi and use the Baneslayer to protect the Teferi. Mm-hmm. But his opponent was at, like, 12 life or something. So if, if if he can just, like, land the Baneslayer, attack once, have Cryptic Command to, like, tap and draw the next combat step, if it's lethal or just, like, not even if it's lethal and just, like, take it, I think that you're just, like, 100% to win from that spot, which yeah. is crazy. <laughs> If you right, because if you just like land your Bane Slayer, get in the attack, hold up Cryptic Command. If the, your opponent presents a non-lethal attack, you can you can just take it, and then your opponent's dead in attack, Cryptic Tap, attack again. Yeah. And and I don't think that his opponent could have represented lethal the next turn. So I think that you know that's just a, like a and that, the fact that that's like 100 line just from landing one of your five mana spells is pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, I think like it's kind of funny. Because that's like the the classic, you know, is this a good interactive format? Is Baneslayer Angel good in this format? And you would never have expected it to be true in Modern, because five mana is just so many mana. But it just lines up so well against, like, all of the creature decks in the format. that, And, and you know, they don't want removal spells in their deck that can deal with this after board. Um, Humans doesn't want Reflector Mage in its deck after board. But this thing just ends the game a lot of the time. Uh, I, I think uh, I probably screwed up my sideboard this weekend because I went with gut shots rather than dismembers, and that left me 
very vulnerable to angels out of the sideboards of these these blue white and Jeskai decks, and I think it's just something you need to be really aware of in your deck building decisions and your your sideboarding decisions going forward from here. Yeah, you know, modern is always evolving pretty rapidly. You know, we're seeing a kind of like a whole new top tier set of of decks even, mm-hmm. and you know, when that happens, you need to definitely make sure that you're adapting your sideboard appropriately and making sure that the card choices are are spot on. Yeah. And and you got to be boarded for the post-board games. Like, I'm playing against a control deck. I'm just going to bring in a couple of thought seasons for a couple of removal spells. Like, doesn't cut it if their sideboard plan is specifically adapted to deal with that sideboard strategy. So, uh, I, I particularly like Dismember against these decks because a, a lot of times, if you can... Like, part of their strategy includes turtling up behind six open mana so you can't really attack into Celestial Colonnade. And if you ever get to just dismember the Celestial Colonnade, that's probably game. So I, I do like that kind of sideboarding strategy against Blue White and Jeskai. Yeah, for sure. One thing that I saw in the top eight of the open was... So, and we should... I should try to use names more than I do. But Steven Borkov, who won the tournament playing Blue White Spirits, one of the things he did in his quarterfinals match against blue white control was to bring in rest in peace and ted mm-hmm. is running yeah. three snapcaster mages and two search for Ascantas, and that's that's his graveyard cards and so i i'm just wondering what you think about that because i had kind of a visceral reaction to to that sort of strategy but uh i definitely yeah am- we I was watching the that match with Dylan on the ride home, and as soon as he cast the rest in peace, Dylan and I kind of looked at each other and we were like overboarding. Um, <laughs> we just kind of yeah. like said in unison, right? Uh, so yeah, I I think that that was in against blue white control. You you don't want to be bringing in rest in peace. It it doesn't do enough, and it's costing you a card that is you know, and, and that's going to be typically pretty relevant if you like you know draw this rest in peace. At a time where it's, you know, it's not functional at all, or, like, even if it is at a time where, you know, it prevents your opponent from being able to Snapcaster into a spell, at that best-case scenario, your card was worth a card, right? It's worth right. that card that Snapcaster was unable to flash back. Which is what they're trying to do with the Snapcaster Mage anyways. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, if you look at it that way and you say, okay, my best-case scenario is that this Rest in Peace is worth a card... Um, or something like that, then, you know, just make it an actual card in your deck and make it, like, a creature that can attack that they are going to need to Snapcaster a removal spell for. And yeah. it's, like, uh, the same, right? If they if they Snapcaster a path on your two-mana creature, that's a better result for you than them playing Snapcaster and you have Rest in Peace in play. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Agreed. Uh, so that's, that's definitely a little... That, that was a little weird to me. Um, I Like, I could be convinced in some specific matchup that it is right if, like, the the card advantage represented by Search for Azkanta and Snapcaster Mage is just so important to the matchup that you can't allow it to happen to you. But that seems to me to be if, you know, it was some sort of matchup where the games would go quite long and, like, that's what's really at stake here. I don't think that Spirits actually loses because their opponent had search for Ascanta early and then managed to flip it. Like, Spirits is the tempo deck here, and they're trying to end the game quickly, and I, I just the, you know, taking a break to cast Rest in Peace to keep your opponent from getting some card advantage 
in the the mid to late game feels like 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 burn definitely doesn't want to rest in peace against blue a control i don't think spirits does either and it it just didn't look great to me yeah yeah um yeah i think that was a mistake spirits you know definitely benefits a lot from having rest in peace in their sideboard for sure uh, and i'm sure it was really good for him over the course of the the weekend but yeah in that one specific spot i i didn't like it as much yeah so i just wanted to to, to talk about that for a little bit sure um Ironworks over the past couple of weeks has developed uh, having a couple of size in the sideboard. Sigh, yeah. So Dylan played Crack Kalan Ironworks last weekend, and he said that the size were just really, really beautiful to to kind of like have an a, a alternative game plan against a lot of the hate that mm-hmm. you know was being presented. It's kind of like the empty the warrens of these this ironworks deck where if your opponent right, like has a rest right. in peace or something you could just like cast sigh and then cast a bunch of artifacts and make like five thopters or something and that sometimes can just like win the game on its own which is pretty crazy yeah definitely and it, i mean it, it kind of plays a double role here it's kind of like the empty the warrens plus the pieces of the puzzle like part yeah of the, right right yeah not to mention the fact that it can just generate you a bunch of value on its own yeah, yeah, like the like you we forget about his activated ability because a lot of times it's most heavily played in standard and you know over the course of a match might draw one or two cards with its activated ability, but that can be a lot more relevant. You know, if your opponent has a stony silence out, you can sacrifice your terrarions and your your chromatic stars to sigh and and you can draw the card. So that's that's a, a really powerful way to get through that hate card. And I think it comes in as a good blocker, a good bunch of blockers in matchups where just buying time against attacking creatures is important. So this is a great innovation, I think. Yeah, right. And it also kind of like works on the theory of like, you know, sideboard juking your opponent a little bit where Mm -hmm. they're boarding out all their removal spells and then you can bring in this, you know, four toughness guy that is really, you know, powerful to just like, you know, be a brick wall against a lot of things if they boarded out their removal spells and everything. You know, like, Reflector Mage is one of the cards that humans, I think, should be cutting in this matchup. You know, and then and then your opponent lands a side, and you're like, oh, man, I, I kind of wish I had that card back. So Yeah, my, I, when I played against KCI, my opponent showed me a side, and then I realized, like, I needed to bring in Staticasters in this particular matchup because the, I just didn't have any other way of, of, like, beating that card if my opponent was actually doing things after casting it. So Right, yeah, for sure. So yeah, definitely a really powerful card. But yeah, definitely a juking card. Like, you don't want this main deck. It's just going to let them use a Fatal Push or use a Path to Exile or something, and that's that's really miserable. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, because that's, that's, that was one of the cards that really impressed me over the weekend. And yeah, I think too. that moving forward will be a staple in uh, in Ironworks. So yeah. be prepared. It's it's great. It's It's definitely excellent. All right, so to focus down a little bit, uh, I kind of want to talk just for a little while about the the time that I spent working on Vengevine and sort of yeah. thoughts that we've had about the deck. I know you've played it a little bit, and both of us have chosen not to bring it to to an actual tournament. <laughs> yeah, um, and I, I, I like I think that's really the place that that I've ended up on it. Deck is very powerful when it works. Uh, I, I had a couple of leagues that it just felt like the easiest magic that i've ever played almost uh just make a bunch of tutus really early in the game or make two vengevines early on uh the problem is you know with decks like these and and this is not like a surprise that this is the problem with the deck but the problem is absolutely one of consistency 
and there just aren't enough enablers, and there especially aren't enough enablers that allow you to take cards from your hand and put them into your graveyard. And, uh, like, games where you draw Faithless Looting, mostly the deck feels incredible. Games where you don't have it, a lot of times you can struggle to, to get things going. Even, I've had games where, you know, I would discard a bridge to an insolent neonate and get a 2-2, and that's a great start. But if I then drew a Vengevine, or if I had another bridge in my hand or something like that, I would have no way of getting it into my graveyard, and it would just be stuck in my hand until I managed to draw another insolent neonate or to draw a faithless looting. You know, maybe I dump a faithless looting into my graveyard with Stitcher's Supplier, and then on turn three, I can finally get rid of these these graveyard cards that are in my hand. And ultimately, finding the balance between enablers, because all of the enablers passed Faithless Looting, Insolent Neonate, and then Stitcher Supplier, all the enablers are like pretty bad. And so finding the balance between graveyard active cards and enablers is really difficult, and it's hard to get those percentages right. Like one of the things that Dredge is really good at is that the cards that say dredge on them are both sort of payoffs to get in your graveyard and enablers in kind of a weird way. Like if I if I am casting Faithless Looting and I don't have any graveyard active cards in my hand, I don't have any prized amalgams or blood gas or whatever, but I'm discarding dredge cards, then that's a payoff for my Faithless Looting is that I'm discarding two Stinkweedimps. At the same time, like getting them into my graveyard enables my deck by putting more cards into the graveyard. The divide between enablers and payoff cards in 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 Bridgevine is very clear. You have enablers and you have payoff cards. And if you draw them in the wrong percentages, your deck doesn't work anymore. And it's hard to build the deck in a way that uh, makes that very likely to happen. And so I think we see you know, different approaches in, you know, nobody has quite settled on anything. Uh, Joe Stempo had some more success with, with the deck in the Open this weekend. Um, his team made the finals of the team Open, and then here he got a top 16 finish with straight black-red Vengevine. Um, no way to remove enchantments, just very straightforward. He was running, you know, five sacrifice outlets and blood ghasts, and he wasn't running any of the bad enablers. No cathartic reunions, no corpse churns, no nothing, nothing like that. Just kind of maximizing on the cards that are like decent magic cards. And then we see a pretty different approach uh, in the one deck that managed to top thirty-two, Prague. Ricardo, uh, I'm not gonna try to pronounce his last name because I would completely butcher it but this list has no no blood ghasts in it so cuts some of the graveyard payoff cards and runs four grizzly salvages so some very direct like i want more enablers and i don't need as many of these payoffs all i care about is getting bridges and vengevines into my graveyard and making that work so we definitely haven't settled on a spot where we understand what exactly is the right ratio of these things and i'm not sure there is a correct ratio to hit to to make it happen a lot you know having a a two mana card like grizzly salvage in your deck really slows down what the deck is doing um and so that's it, it has been difficult to find a sort of consistent setup that works often and is also doing powerful fast things yeah some of the some of the fixes i've seen for some of those problems have been 
So I've, I've been kind of preaching Shriekhorn for a little bit now as like mm -hmm. an, an additional one mana enabler. Yep. Um, just, you know, dump six cards in your graveyard over the course of three turns, I guess. And then I've also seen some people testing out Haunted Dead and what's the other one? Rotting Rats? Because uh, you mentioned the problem of not being able to like get cards from your hand into your graveyard. And yeah. Haunted Dead and Rotting Rats are cards that you can like mill over from all of your mill spells and then utilize those to get cards from your hand into your graveyard. Mm -hmm. So that seemed pretty interesting. Yeah, um, and that may be a direction that, that helps to fix a little bit of that. You know, because those cards are kind of overlap between payoff and uh, right. enabler cards, and I think that's what the deck needs. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, right, so I think that, uh, you know, it feels it feels so much like if we can just find that, like, that good ratio, then all of a sudden this deck becomes perfect or whatever. But finding that ratio, you know, like you said, seems like it's going to be a really, really difficult task. Yeah, like, if I could pick three of the seven cards in my hand every game, I would win, <laughs> like, 100% of my games with this deck because it's just doing a completely broken thing. But when you don't get that, it's it's it fizzles pretty hard. Um, and it's also got some other serious issues that if the deck were more consistent and, and more consistently straightforward and powerful, um, these issues could be worked through. But right now, when the deck is just kind of struggling to do its thing anyways, these uh, issues get kind of damning, and I it, it's difficult to justify putting in the energy to try to solve them in the best way possible. Uh, yeah. One of them is just, you know, that Graveyard Hate is very good against you. If they put a Ley Line into play, you're in a lot of trouble. You know, so, like, Joe's solution to that is just say, all right, I'm just going to assume that doesn't happen to me, uh, which I I kind of understand. I, I'm pretty into that. You know, I think he brings in Crit Breakers as a possible way to, like, grind through some Graveyard Hate, but realistically, if, if Ley Line comes into play, he's not winning that game. Um, and boarding in naturalize effects whether it's uh destructive revelry uh or uh nature's claim it has feel has felt a little bit just it it the deck already has trouble having enough payoffs and enablers once you start putting in disenchants your ratio gets pretty bad you know yeah. ancient grudge at least is graveyard active but yeah uh, it, the, those those post-board games where i was trying to be prepared for rest in peace or ley line mostly just ended poorly for me regardless of whether they had it or not so uh that's a tough issue other issue is one of mana in the deck i love that joe just went straight red black fetch lands blood crypts black cleave cliffs one basic land i think that's totally fine uh the problem is that when you are splashing a color and you also want to have a basic or two for field of ruin and path to exile purposes and i guess for fetching against burn purposes the deck is really colored mana intensive. Uh, if you're running Bushwhacker, that costs double red, but you also want to be able to use all of your mana to cast Gravecrawler when you've got that combo going on. And I've had games where, you know, I tried to protect my life total, so I fetched either a Swamp or a Mountain early on, and then I just lost because of it, because I needed all the colored mana of very specific colors that I could make two turns later. And so... Once, you, once you're at a point where you have, like, a couple of duels of your off-color and a, a basic or two, it becomes very easy to get, like, really awkward mana draws. 
Yeah, I, I definitely ran into a lot of those problems testing out the white splash for Wismare, where like mm-hmm. you know sometimes I would just like mill over the the like the one white chocolate <laughs> I had in my deck. Yeah, and then that was just like that was it or whatever. I, I, I yeah, I can definitely see the problem. And you yeah, you definitely can't afford one more than one. It feels like um like you know off color shock because of the because of the problems that you're presenting, which which are I feel very accurate, which are you know your mana is really difficult. You have a lot of color requirements for both black and red. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, just pretty, pretty tough to make it work. And then one of the other things that kind of bothers me when I'm trying to like make my starting 60 is that Goblin Bushwhacker is quite, it's, it's hard to say that like Goblin Bushwhacker is good. Goblin Bushwhacker feels necessary and it feels like it's patching up a deck that's not quite getting there. Like, you need to push through that last damage, you need to get past the three toughness guys in humans, and Goblin Bushwhacker is good at those things, but it's doing so at kind of a tremendous cost to the deck. Because it's neither graveyard active, nor is it graveyard enabling. It only does a thing when you're already doing your thing, and the fact that that's not win more, the fact that that's like necessary in a bunch of matchups to to make the fact that I got several zombies off of my bridge and now I need this bushwhacker so that they can actually deal lethal to my opponent, that's kind of the last thing that makes me feel like, all right, I kind of just want to shelve this strategy for now and maybe come back to it if we figure out some other way to, to make the whole thing work. Yeah, that makes sense. So, uh, unfortunate, it, it is a fun deck. It is a really cool deck. But yeah, it's just just not quite working for me right now. Yeah, I mean, I've also put it on the shelf for the time being. Haven't been tinkering with it. Haven't really been trying out as much stuff. Uh, a lot mm-hmm. of that has been due to you know my time constraints, but also a lot of that has been due to me also kind of getting frustrated from you know not being able to find the appropriate uh, sixty. Right. Yeah, and I I just had one match where I mulliganed to five at least one game every match. Uh, one one league where I. I mulligan to five at least one game every match. And after that, it was just a little too frustrating to keep going with it. Fair enough. You know, yeah. sometimes you got to give yourself a breather. Yep. And that's what I did. I guess that's probably, probably enough complaining about this deck. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you are, you are going to the open this weekend playing some legacy. Do we have any thoughts on uh, what we don't have to do a whole, you know, full section on legacy. We've already, talk for quite a bit on modern but do you have any ideas what you're going to play this weekend what the metagame is going to look like yeah i mean the metagame seems to be relatively narrow actually for legacy right now i think the the options that i'm going to pick between are death shadow death and taxes and eldrazi stompy like those i think are the big three decks that you know if you're if you're trying to play a deck those are you know if you're if you're not already like have a lot of reps with one particular legacy deck i think that those are the th- kind of like the three that you should be picking from. Right. And so that's that's a Brainstorm deck, a Vile deck, and a Chalice deck. So I think that's kind of like a, the Holy Trinity. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Of Legacy. Right. So you can you can play Brainstorm, or you can play Chalice, or you can play Vile. And, you know, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to playing Legacy, be- just because there's, you know, there's a lot of play to Legacy that I that I kind of miss, <laughs> I guess. You know, from trying to jam all these all these graveyard and, and burn decks where the play is more in your deck construction than in the actual gameplay itself. But yeah, I, I'm going to be testing out Death Shadow, you know, when I get the chance this week. I'm also going to be testing out Death and Taxes. And if neither of those really call to me, I'm probably going to end up settling on 
the Eldrazi deck, but I, I really want to avoid playing the Eldrazi deck because that's another deck that feels more, um, you know, your equity comes from your, your card selection, not your, your, your play in the game. Right. Um, it's, a, it's another one of those like kind of clumsy decks, I guess. You... Right. Yeah. You're, you're really hoping to get wins off of having Chalice of the Void and Thorn of Amethyst or Trinisphere or whatever in your deck. Um, and I, you know, while it might be true that that it would give a player the most... Because the, these Eldrazi decks seem really strong, right? They're powerful, um, for sure. And I've, I've heard people say that that's just, like, the choice that you should have in... Or should be making in, in Legacy right now. But I just, you know, I want to I want to play, right? So I'm going to make... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make my decisions based on the fact that i want to try to outplay people this weekend so and that that cuts me down to death and taxes or death shadow um death shadow definitely has more opportunities for sequencing but death and taxes has an extraordinary amount of play that isn't you know surface level just because of the fact that legacy has a lot of play that isn't surface level um yeah yeah you know i I could see myself playing either one of those this weekend um, any any plans for how to deal with Dread of Night out of sideboards? You got any any ideas for that? Or just kind of like trust that the matchup uh, is good game one and get there? <laughs> Council's judgment? <laughs> Question mark? Yeah. Um, yeesh. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, it's definitely a... Um, that That is definitely one of the problems with Death and Taxes is that it, it can be hated out sometimes, but... Right, right, for sure. Um, <laughs> Crusade... What creatures get plus one plus one? <laughs> um, uh, right, that's yeah, that's the tech. I see your my creatures get minus one minus one, and I raise you. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, I think well, you know, like the reason that that dread of night is in the board of those decks is because the matchup is atrocious otherwise. So, you know, if you just sort of rely on your deck to win game one, and then you know. I mean, they're really good at drawing at games two and three because they are a, a brainstorm deck. But if you have enough batter skull type things and stuff, it's it's not necessarily the game. And yeah, probably probably ways to play through it, play around it. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, I my my top choice right now is is Death Shadow. I you know I've played a lot of modern Death Shadow. I've played a lot of Legacy Grixis yep. Delver. This seems like a marriage of the two. You know, I know how to sequence these cantrips, and I know how to, you know, play Death Shadows pretty well. Um, and that strategy in general just gives you a lot of play options, which is nice. So, looking forward to that. Nice. Well, can I interest you in this Legacy Bridge from Below deck? This is... No! <laughs> <laughs> I want to be able to play! Yeah, I saw this link that you sent me. Carrion Feeders and... Goblin Bombardments and Phyrexian Altar is that what I'm looking at? Yep, yep. Sacrifice Outlets. This deck actually it has a bunch of Sacrifice Outlets and like Grave Crawlers. It's actually only got two bridges in it because it's I think it's more interested in entombing for a bridge rather than discarding yeah. it to a Faithless Looting, which is super sweet. I'm really into that. This is a, another one of those decks that exactly one person has ever played. Every single result for it is uh, this yeah, same yeah, Magic yeah. Online grinder. But yeah, a, a sweet deck. But like, I, I think the more important thing about this deck is like this to me is like, okay, that's a consistent bridge from below deck. Like this has the right mix of enablers and payoffs and a straightforward plan that, that it's gunning for most time, most games that, you know, this is a, a ratio of those things that actually make sense to me and 
probably can work out. The The modern deck is just like trying a little too hard and, and fizzles a little too often. A card like Entomb, which, you know, is a fundamentally broken card, but that solves all the issues that the deck has, basically. You know, yeah. basically, I just, I just want Vengevine to look like this, and then I'll play it, but uh, <laughs> that's, that's not yeah, in the we cards. We just don't have the tools quite yet in modern right now. Yeah. Because they're, they're never going to give us Entomb, and they should not give us Entomb. Yeah, that card is broken. It's very busted. <laughs> yeah. Alright, so shall we get to our Patreon question of the week? Uh, yeah, let's do it. Cool. So, DefJad asks, After a loss where there's no obvious punt or variance impact, e.g. extreme mana issues or flood or something like that, I default to honing in on a decision which may or may not have been a mistake. I struggle to decide when to call a close loss variance, and I think it leads to me being too difficult on myself. Of course, there's never a perfect game, but I have a tendency to be overly critical of myself, and I believe this is a net negative to the mental side of the game for me. Any advice on this? And if you ballparked a percentage on losses to variance, what would that be, just as a reference point? So I thought this was a really interesting question, um, but I'll let you give your thoughts on it before I, I talk about why I thought it was so interesting. Yeah, I mean, so it's addressing kind of like, you know, multiple factors that I've put a lot of thought into in Magic in general. It's addressing taking responsibility for your own decision making and not, you know, not always blaming variants, but also kind of like the the opposite end of that spectrum. And, you know, am I being too hard on myself, you know, when I, you know, when I am always kind of like believing that it's my fault or something. And I think that maybe the balance there you know it sounds like he's trying to figure out where the balance is when it comes to how much should i blame on myself versus how much should i allow myself to believe was variance that is something that is extraordinarily difficult to to hone down on because on your own it's going to be virtually impossible to have an accurate depiction of you know all of the mistakes that you make I found that without, you know, without like somebody looking over your shoulder every time, you're just, you're just not, you know, nobody's going to be able to, to identify all of the mistakes that they're making. You know, I don't, I don't really care how good you are. That's just, a, you know, something that if, if you're making a mistake, you know, you're, you're not always going to be able to catch it. Uh, but the other half of this is something that you might want to focus on more, which you might not expect, which is how these, this overcriticalness is affecting the mental game that he has. And that probably is because uh, you might be kind of feeling the feeling the need to kind of beat up on yourself a little bit for, for the mistakes that you make. The And I know that this concept is really hard to implement because we're human and we're not going to always be able to, you know, be a, be a Buddhist monk and think of things like this. But I think that it's <laughs> good to try to see that you make mistakes and and kind of be happy that that's happening. You know, every time I you know, you make a mistake, you you can definitely be tempted to kind of like beat yourself up on it and say, "Oh, I can do better than that." But the reality is that, you know, every time you make a mistake, you have the opportunity to learn from that. And that is in and of itself a really valuable thing. So if you look at these mistakes in this positive light of like I'm I'm so excited because I made this mistake and I saw that it was a mistake, which is also something to be really happy about and excited about. And now I can kind of like critically analyze that and critically analyze my thought process that led me into that mistake. Um, you know, these are these are good things, right? And and it comes from a bad thing that you that impacted your probably your tournament or your your win percentage or kind of whatever else you might be worried about. 
but you know trying not to get too wrapped up in your immediate results and being more focused on the learning process for me personally has helped me like view these mistakes in a more positive light instead of you know seeing all these mistakes I'm, I'm making and, and and really beating beating me up for it right yeah definitely i so i sometimes let myself get tilted mostly when i play magic online uh like if i am you know in a draft or whatever and and something you know really unlucky happens to me uh sometimes i let that tilt me and then i found that if i realize that i've made a mistake and that was really what cost me the game a lot of times i kind of feel better about it because you know it's it's bad that i'm making mistakes but yeah if you recognize it and then you realize that you can fix that then that's that's actionable like that's a, a, a thing you can work on and that's something that you gain from that game uh that that you, you you know you don't get much out of just losing to getting stuck on two lands but if uh you you know were trying needed to sequence a little bit better to you know maximize your chances of surviving to draw that third or fourth land and you didn't quite do it um maybe it wouldn't have won you the game but you could have played better and usually when that happens i feel a little bit better when i realize it even though you know shouldn't have been making those mistakes in the first place um well i mean you said some things there that i i want to address you said it's bad that i'm making mistakes and at the end there you said i shouldn't be making mistakes in the first place and i think that that notion might just be not true. Uh, right, it's right. Kinda, it's kind of good that you're making mistakes, right? Or, you know, maybe not, like, good in the immediate sense, but, um, uh, you know, good for your learning process. And also, something that you honestly don't really have that much control over. You are going to make mistakes. That's, like, not really up to you. <laughs> yep. Uh, or anybody else. It's, it's just going to happen. You know, you're going to make mistakes, and... If you notice them and you learn from them, then that is something to rejoice in. Um, but, uh, you know, the fact that you're making mistakes isn't, shouldn't really be the thing that you're, you're beating yourself up on for, right? It's, you know, if you're, if you're not noticing any mistakes that you're making, I would feel worse than if I was noticing a lot of mistakes that I'm making, right? Because, because at least in that second scenario, I have the opportunity to, to learn and grow. Um, whereas if I'm not, if I play a tournament and I don't notice any mistakes, but I don't win the tournament, then I'm, I probably feel pretty bad about that, how that weekend's gone for me. Um, right, because uh, you right, did because, make mistakes. Because, like, because the problem is that, that I know that I was making mistakes, mm-hmm. but I didn't see any, and then, and then I have to be concerned, right? Yeah. yeah, and I was definitely, I, I was being a little tongue-in-cheek when I was saying, like, I shouldn't have been making those mistakes. Mostly because every time you recognize a mistake, like, it is that visceral, like, feeling of embarrassment, feeling yeah, like yeah, I'm better sure. than that. Um, but, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that when you do recognize that mistake, that is, that's a huge payoff. But that, that reaction of, you know, I'm better than that is, I'm sure that's something that everybody has. Like, I have that mm-hmm. too. Like, I, you know, I make mistakes and I'm like, come on, Collins, you, you can do better. But I think mm-hmm. that, that that statement comes from kind of a bad place in all of us. That belief that, you know, that we're, we're somehow above making mistakes is sure. something that I think that all of us have. I definitely have it. You know, I'm, you know, I'm not going to say that I'm, I'm <laughs> enlightened somehow beyond that. But I do think that it is important to recognize that we're really not above our mistakes. We, you know, uh, it's, it's just something that we're going to have to learn to, to deal with. Yep. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think one important thing as well is to... It's interesting that DefJad leads this question off with um, after a loss. And this is when this all comes in. And I think it's really, really important to disconnect this from winning and losing. Because it's so easy to... And I, I'm as guilty of this as anyone. It's so easy to identify a mistake you made and then just sort of push it to the side because you won in spite of it. Um, but that mistake that you made in that game is exactly as important as the, you know, maybe not for your tournament results, but it in the, the, the whole point is to get better at magic. And that mistake that you made that didn't matter in a game is exactly the same as if you made that mistake and it cost you the game. So I, I think separating that, uh, you know, figuring out if, like it's it's there's no game that's lost entirely because of mistakes or entirely because of variance. It's going to be a mixture of the two, and I think figuring out whether a loss is variance or a mistake is kind of uh, missing missing the point of having identified the mistake. If you identified a mistake you made, then that's good and we can work from there. And who cares if that's the reason that the game ended the way it did? Uh, that's right. You know, it feels it feels worse. If you're six and one, and then you lose a match because you made a mistake, that feels a lot worse. But once you're a week removed from the tournament, the mistake is identical, basically, whether or not it actually had an effect on the game. And you know, it is true that losses bring more attention to the mistakes that we make, right? Because mm-hmm. if we win and we make a mistake, then then we're not really we don't feel the need as much to to go back and identify mistakes. But losses are kind of like something that that gives you the opportunity to 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 take that self reflection on on what went wrong, right? So that's true, that's kind of like true. one of the benefits to losing almost is um, you know whenever you lose you that incentivizes you to to check yourself a little bit, which which can be can be helpful. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and then kind of like the last part of this question, um, if if I ballparked a percentage on losses to variance, what would that be? I think it, it varies so much from player to player, uh, but like in general in the game of Magic, I think like the best players in the world lose probably Most like of their losses to variants. Yeah. Well, n- not even. Um, I think that they lose like two matches or so at a Grand Prix to variants or something. So mm-hmm. like in if that's true, then in theory, if you play perfectly, you will top eight a Grand Prix, right? But even the best players in the world don't top eight every Grand Prix, which I think goes to show that, you know. See, I wonder. I wonder if that is true. Out. I wonder. I wonder if with perfect play you would top eight the majority of Grand Prixs you play. I, it's just so hard. And I mean, ultimately, like it just doesn't. It like this is not an important. Yeah. Like, thing yeah. to figure out because we got to play as best as we can, and whether you, you know. Whether you lost or won, if you made the mistake, you got to try to fix the mistake in the future. And, you know, like, I I do think it is important to not beat yourself up because of a mistake. It's it's easy to beat yourself up. And these are all things that I've done and, and try not to do as much. But, you know, when you identify something that you did that cost you a game in, in a situation that that match really mattered, it's tough. But I think that, you know, figuring out that it's something you did wrong and then we can get better and not do that in the future like you are coming away with something valuable from there right yeah 
Yeah, like, it's easy to, like, go to Grand Prix and then make mistakes and then feel really bad about that. Because mm -hmm. the, in our mind, the the whole notion of playing at a Grand Prix is, like, when we're trying to perform, right? Like, yep. this is, this is, these are the matches that matter, right, is yep. what we tell ourselves. Absolutely. But the reality is that in every tournament that you play, it's all just part of that journey. Where the mistakes that you make in that tournament are part of you learning and growing. And, you know, you'll have your opportunity to perform at, you know, the theoretical next one, right? Where you're always going to have opportunities to perform. And we're always performing. Um, but at the same time, we're always learning, right? So, so even if you're like, you know, you feel like you're playing the match that in this moment is like the, the pinnacle of your match career. If you, if you win this match, you get to make the top eight of this Grand Prix and it's going to be great. Even though that might feel like the time where you need and want to perform, that in and of itself is also just part of your journey. It's not the last match of Magic that you're going to play, right? Uh, you're going to continue to play more after that. So, you know, I think... <laughs> Unless it really it, messes you up psychologically. <laughs> right, yeah. Thinking of it as additionally part of your journey instead of I want to perform right now, even when you're playing at the highest level, is, is going to be... It's going to be better. Yeah. Yep. I... I completely agree with that. Just, you know, I'm I'm ending this, you know, sort of tour of Europe where I've gone <laughs> to a bunch of European GPs and I'm walking away. Like, I didn't even finish, I, I didn't finish any of these GPs even at 12 and 3. Like, my best mm. finish is a, a couple of 11 and 4s. And, you know, that's a little bit, I, I don't feel great about that. I would love to, I, I played in a bunch of GPs. I would love to have top aided one or qualified for the pro tour, or at least like gotten a solid like 12 and three or, or, or two 12 and threes or something. Mm -hmm. But, you know, this isn't like the end of me playing GPs or anything like that. This is just like one stage where I'm trying to get my technical play better because I think that is by far the weakest part of my game is is sitting down and playing all of my cards in the correct order and, and not casting things too early and, and mulliganing properly. And I, I definitely, you know, I, that is to me something that is kind of difficult. I'm much better at identifying a deck that I think is good. I'm pretty decent at tuning sideboards. I am still working on not making, you know, kind of silly mistakes sometimes. And that's, I, I, you know, I can think back to several moments where I just did silly things that cost me matches that could have, you know, if I didn't screw up and, you know, there was one match that I lost because I just didn't activate a walking ballista in response to a removal spell on it. And that cost yeah. me a game in a match that if I had won... You know that was that was a GP where I went eleven and four. Maybe I would not have gone eleven and four if I had not just screwed up this this one silly thing. But that's also just part of I'm I'm practicing. I'm trying to get better, and that's you know like you said that's that's part of my journey right now. Yeah, for sure. And it's you know it's kind of good to take that time to self reflect on that. Yeah, so I'm glad we talked about it. Yeah, I've been really enjoying these Patreon questions because it feels like every time we kind of get to go on some sort of <laughs> uh, cool discussion. So that's awesome. Yeah, soapbox a little bit. Yeah. Uh -oh. Cool. Well, I think that's pretty much it for us this week, unless you got anything else to add. Uh, I think that's that's covering everything that I'm trying to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty spent. Awesome. So thanks thanks to Jeff Def Jad for that question. Um, thanks so much to our patrons for supporting 
the podcast for hanging out in the Discord, for asking sweet questions. Uh, we definitely couldn't do this without you guys. If you would like to become a patron, uh, we would super appreciate it. Just head over to patreon.com slash mtggrindcast, or you can find it, uh, there's links to it on our site, mtggrindcast.com, where you can also find links to Collins's personal coaching services. Um, Definitely check it out. You can also find links to our Twitters. I am tweeting from at mtg underscore grindcast, and Collins is also on Twitter, at Collins Mullen. Thank you guys so much for listening, and have a great week. Peace. Thank you.